we're starting a new series today. So if this is your first time here, you caught us at a perfect time because you don't have to get caught up on anything. Uh, For the next few weeks, we want to talk about church essentials. And what that is, is if you were to strip everything away from what a church is, like, you know, nowadays we have churches with, you know, with crazy, like, musicians with smoke machines and light effects, and we have churches with, I heard there's a church in, like, somewhere with a bowling alley, like, wow, that's crazy, like, it's like a rock climbing wall thing, you're like, where? I want to go to that church. No, stay here. Um, But if we're to strip away all those things, and we just say, okay, this is what church is at the core, what is it? What is it? What are the essentials of the church? And a lot of people, including myself, when we start figuring, looking at that, we, what we do is we always go back to the birthday of the church. Like, how did the church start? How do we know what the church is all about? Well, we go back to the way that church started because when it's something starts, it usually starts with the core, with the essence of what it really is. And then from there, people add stuff onto it. And these things that they add on are not bad things, okay? But um, what is the core of church? What what is at the center of it, right? And so the way we look at that is, well, let's look at this day that church started. And so I'm going to share a few verses with you. Today, by the way, there's a whole bunch of verses. If you like Bible verses, today is the day for you. Um, okay, but let's go back to the time that Jesus died on the cross. Jesus died. He rose again three days later, okay? And then after Jesus rose again, he, looked, he found his disciples and he went to his disciples and said, here's a crash course on everything you need to know. Because I'm about to leave again, and when I leave, you guys are going to be on your own. The Holy Spirit will be with you, but you need to know some things. So he has this crash course, and I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when Jesus was giving a crash course on everything about the Bible, and you know, right? But right after that, Peter, the oldest of the disciples, he steps out into the public. He goes into a temple, right? There's a lot of Jewish people there. And he goes out there, and he preaches this amazing sermon. And that sermon is recorded for us in the book of Acts, in the beginning of the book of Acts, chapter 2. And after he does that, This is what happens. This is chapter 2, verse 41. Those who accepted his message, that's Peter's message, right, were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And this is the beginning of church. Peter preaches a sermon, and people are like, you're right. Now, the sermon that he preaches is a sermon about, guys, you know Jesus. You saw him walking around not just that long ago. Like, when we talk about church today, when we talk about Jesus, we talk about something that happened 2,000 years ago. For these guys, when Jesus died on the cross, that was a month and a half ago from this point in the story. So he's saying, you guys remember a month and a half ago? Jesus? Like, yeah, yeah, we know Jesus. Like, yeah, remember how he was hanging on the cross? Like, yeah, we all saw him. Like, these were eyewitnesses. It's like, and remember just a few days ago, you guys saw him walking around? It's like, yeah, we did see him walking around. What is that about? It's like, he rose from the grave. He's, he, he's alive. And they're like, you're so right. And 3,000 people said, Peter, we can't deny what you're saying. We are 100% in agreement with you. What do we do? What do we do? And so the birth of the church happened that day. And the next verse is the verse we're going to camp out, camp, camp out on for the next few weeks, okay? 242. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayer. There's four things listed there. But before we talk about the four things, I want to focus on the word devoted. Because I think a lot of times we look at the word devoted and we're kind of like, okay, that means they just focused on it? Like, what does that mean? In the Greek, the word is poskarterero. That explains everything. No. Um, okay, what that means is that you made a habit out of it. You focused on it so much, you did it, 
You purposely did it over and over and over and over again until it became a habit to you. That became part of who you were. Okay, so when these 3,000 people gather together, they're like, hey, let's keep doing this at a regular, consistent time. So whether if it's weekly or daily or hourly, I don't know what it is, but they did it over and over and over again for a long time, and we're still doing it today as a church, right? They did these these four things over and over and over again until it became a habit that became a part of who they were. So these four things we're going to talk about are the church essentials. Now, uh, let me list the four things right here. Okay, apostles' teachings, fellowship, breaking bread, and prayer. Now, there's something really interesting about this list here. Okay, and I'm going to kind of go into this whole historical background thing for you for a few seconds, okay? These four things are not what you think it means. You're like, what? You're like, yeah, okay. Because in a way, when, when these four words were written down on the pages of the book of Acts, people who read them knew exactly what it meant, okay? And it, it meant what it meant. But over the years, over the generations, we as Christians created this thing called Christian culture. Christian culture, you know, like we say like, oh, I'm doing devotions. Like, oh, where is that in the Bible? It's like where devotions don't show up in the Bible, right? Um, like the word fellowship. What we think fellowship means today is not what they thought fellowship meant back then, Okay. So when we talk about these different things, I want to go over each one each week talking about what they really meant to the people back then, okay, and how we need to live that out today. So today we're going to focus on the first one, which is apostles' teaching, but the better translation for the apostles' teaching is this, learning the implications, learning the implications. Because when people think apostles' teachings, they're like, oh, so you mean the apostles got together and talked about the death and resurrection of Jesus? Yes, but that wasn't the main point. The main point was, because Jesus died and rose again, what are the million plus one implications of that actually happening? That's what they spent their time talking about. And so people would gather and they would talk about, well, what does this mean? What does that mean? If Jesus died on the cross, what does that mean for me? Do I have to change the way I live? What does that require of me? All those things happen. And so what they would talk about first would be, well, what happened 50 days ago? Like, what happened a month and a half ago? What happened to Jesus? And let's figure that out so we know the implications of that. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at the life of Jesus as he was dying, okay, because most of the Gospels, you know, this is really good, you know, there's four biographies in the Bible of Jesus' life, but most of them, they kind of zoom through his life and they slow down to talk about the Passion Week, the week that he was sentenced to death, okay? So we're going to do that right now so we know exactly what these people in the first century were talking about when they said apostles' teachings. Are we cool with that? All right, so let's start with Matthew chapter 21. Um, In this scene... um, Jesus' followers, oh, thanks. (laughs) So Jesus, this is the last week of Jesus' life, okay? And Jesus would make a habit of going into the temple to teach the things that he wanted to teach. So he had a crowd. He had this big following, okay? And so he'll walk into the temple, and he'll, when he shows up, all these people will gather around him, and Jesus will start teaching. And everybody kind of expected him to be there by now because that was the Jesus thing. He just showed up, and people expected him to be here at a certain time, so they would be waiting for him. And so they're like, oh, Jesus isn't here yet, but he's going to be here soon. Like, can't wait to hear what he's going to teach about today. And that's what's going on, okay? This is one of those examples. Matthew chapter 21, start from verse 23. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priest, which is the leader of the temple that he was preaching in, and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they ask? And who gave you this authority? What these people are doing is they're realizing that Jesus is getting a bigger crowd than the actual people who work in the temple. And so they were getting jealous, and so they started questioning Jesus' authority. What do we call that? We call that trying to discredit somebody else. 
like, Jesus, do you really have a PhD in this stuff? Can you really talk about this stuff? Aren't you some, like, carpenter guy? You know, like, and they would say this in public so the people who are listening to Jesus would hear and they would try to discredit Jesus at the same time. Okay, so in Matthew 21, he's being discredited. Let's skip to Matthew chapter 26. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, Jesus had twelve disciples, and he's talking about one of them, went to the chief priest and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him thirty pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So Judas knew that these religious leaders wanted to get Jesus because Jesus was making them look bad, right? So he was like, hey, my name is Judas. You probably saw me hanging out with Jesus. Uh, I know you guys really want him gone, and I'm willing to hand him over to you. And they're like, well, name the price. Like, ah, say 30 silver pieces. What do we call that? That's called betrayal. So, so far, he's been discredited, and now he's been betrayed. Verse 36. Jesus went to his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. Now, this is the night before Jesus was handed over and was killed, okay? He took Peter and, two, uh, and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. These are the, the immediate close friends of Jesus. Judas was one of the 12, okay? And these are his close friends that he, he spent three years pouring into. And out of that 12, there's this smaller group of people who called, he called them them basically the closest friends he had okay so he says i'm about to die tomorrow could you come with me and pray with me um then he said to them my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death stay here and keep watch with me he says my heart is about to break so not only was i discredited and betrayed now my heart is about to break because i'm so sad something bad is about to happen and then next verse <clears throat> he turned to his disciples and found them sleeping. So Jesus goes off and he prays. He comes back and he finds the three closest friends. They're falling asleep. And by the way, just to be fair, just to give him some, like, lee- some leeway, they just had four cups of wine right before this happened. So I understand, right? Okay. <laughs> Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So not only has he been discredited, betrayed, and now he feels overwhelmed, now his closest friends, they're letting him down. I thought I could count on you guys, but I, obviously I can't because you can't even stay up for one hour to pray with me. I mean, bad things are happening one after the other. These are the things that they talked about in the first church. Now, next, we're going to look at the next part of the uh, next verse, which is Matthew chapter 26, verse 66. But let me set that up for you. So eventually from the garden, they were... Um, the guards came in, the religious guards came in, took him away, and now he's standing be- before a council of religious people. And now they're having dialogues amongst each other, like, what should we do with this guy? What should we do with this guy? We need to get rid of him. What do we do? And this is a sneak into that scene. This is Matthew chapter 26, verse 66. What do you think? This is one religious leader talking to another one. What do you think? And the other one says, he is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face, they struck him with his, their fists, others slapped him, and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? He's like, oh, if you say you're the son of God, you should totally know who just hit you. They're just mocking him. So he's been discredited, he's been betrayed, he's been overwhelmed, he's let down by his friends. On top of that, let's add to the list, he's been sped on, he's been struck, he's been slapped, and now he's being mocked. And the story continues. Now, Jesus was taken away, and now he's with, um, with the governor, okay? And now... Um, at this point, 
Jesus is very, very weak. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, so he's watching this happen. And a servant girl came to him. Hey, you are also a Jesus of Galilee, she said. She's like, aren't you part of the group of guys that hung out with that guy that's being pers- persecuted right now? Aren't you part of that group? And he's like, uh, me? Um, um, what does it say? He denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about. So Peter, now keep in mind, Peter is the oldest of the disciples. That means he's the leader of the group. The leader of this movement that Jesus has handed over to his people, that leader is saying, I, I-, I don't know him. I-, I don't want to be in trouble. I don't know him. Okay, next verse. Then he went out to the gateway because he's like, this is a dangerous place to be, so I'm going to walk away, where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. Like, I swear I've seen you somewhere. Oh, yeah, you're with Jesus, weren't you? He denied it again with an oath. And they put that in there because when you make an oath in those days, you're making an oath to God. Okay, so he's making an oath to God. He's, he's like, I, I swear on God's life that, that I don't know him. So he's lying not just to the people, but he's also lying in the name of God. I don't know this man. And it gets worse. Next verse. Uh, after a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. You have a, your accent gives you away. Peter was from the place called Galilee. And this place is, is like northern part of the nation of Israel. <clears throat> These people spoke with a different accent than the people down here. Most religious movements happen in the south. But Jesus came from the north, and that's why his group was so distinct. So he's like, hey, the way you talk, it, 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 you were definitely with Jesus because you're part of this movement, and, and you have that accent from the northern part. So you must be part of the group. And then what did Peter do? He banned to call down what? Curses. And then he swore to them, I don't know the man. The leader of the movement that Jesus is trying to start has just denied him three times, each time worse than the time before. Now, after this, Jesus was taken away to the governor, right? And he got flogged. That means the back of, you know, the back looks like it's all bloody and there's tissues dangling from his back and his back is unrecognizable, right? And then after that point, this happens. The governor's soldiers took Jesus to the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Now remember, his back is bloody, okay? So when they strip him, all the blood that is coagulated and stuck to his shirt is now just being torn off, okay? And put a scarlet robe on him and twisted uh, together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. These, these thorns would go right into his scalp and it would go straight in and popping some of those veins in there. And then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews. Like, you say you're the king of the Jews? Well, here's your robe, man, and here's your crown. Ooh, you know, praise you. Like, they're mocking him. And then they spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head, making those thorns go deeper and deeper into his skull, Right? Again and again, after they had mocked him, they took off the robe, again, exposing and all that blood coming, gushing out after that, and put his own clothes on him again. And then they led him away to crucify him. Crucify him. He had to carry the cross, and because he lost so much fluids at this point, he could barely carry the cross on his own, so he had to get somebody else to help him carry it. He gets to the top of the mountain, and then they, they, they pierce his hands and feet with nails, going right through it into the board behind it so that he, he could hang on, this, on the cross. And you're like, oh, let, just, let the torture just stop right now. This is so bad. But does it stop here? No. Because this is what happens when he's hanging on the cross. Take a look at this. In the same way the chief priests, 
the teachers of the law, and the elders. These are the religious people of the time. Mocked Jesus while he's dying on the cross. Hasn't he had enough? Obviously not because they're still going at it, right? He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. You really think you're the son of God? Well, then why don't you come down from the cross? And you know what? Jesus probably could have, but he said nothing. He's like, I'm just going to let him hurl insults at me. So I don't know if you've been keeping track of all the bad things that's been happening to Jesus in the last 72 hours or so, but I made a, a list. It's not complete. Okay, there's way more things that happened to him, but this is a list that happened. Jesus was discredited, betrayed, deserted, denied, spat on, struck in the face, slapped, mocked, stripped, naked, uh, insulted, beaten, falsely accused, convicted, condemned, crucified, humiliated, pierced, bruised, rejected, hated, abandoned, and murdered. And that's just a few. At least these are the ones that were recorded. Now, not to compare or anything, but the other day I was driving and somebody cut me off and I was kind of angry. <clears throat> and my response wasn't that nice. My response was, I'm going to cut that guy off. I'm going to slow down on purpose. <laughs> right? And Jesus endured a lot more than what I did, right? <clears throat> what was Jesus' response to all this stuff? Maybe there's one swear word that came out of his mouth. Or maybe he gave somebody a dirty look like, <laughs> or maybe he's like, I have the power of the universe in my hands. I could just you know, lightning, you know, I could do the Pikachu thing, right? <laughs> die, die, right? <clears throat> what was his response? Luke chapter 23 records for us one of the many responses. This is what he says. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Later on that chapter around verse 43, he's looking at the other two criminals who are hanging on the cross next to him. He looks at one of them and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. He's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about the people around him. In the book of John, in chapter 19, he looks down at the cross. His mother, Mother Mary, is staring at Jesus, his, her own son, who is now naked in front of the whole world to be embarrassed and to be seen, right? He's not worried about himself. He looks at his mom and says, John, could you take care of my mom for me? From this day on, Mary is your mother. Take care of her like she's your own. Jesus, his response every step of the way is not evil. It's good. When all these bad things are thrown at Jesus, you throw one bad thing at me, then I respond with evil, right? But this is what's going on here. <clears throat> through, the heart, uh, the, through the harshest evil, Jesus' heart was bent on selflessness, forgiveness, invitation, and care. How does he do that? How does he do that? There's not one time Jesus responded evil with evil. He was selfless, he was forgiving, he was inviting, and he was caring. What do we call that? We call it this. We call it love. He never once responded evil with evil. Not once. You see, that's what I would do. <laughs> and maybe I shouldn't be your pastor because I do that. Okay. <laughs> but what does this mean? You see, People who were watching this whole thing happen, now today in Christianity, we look back at that thing that happened 2,000 years ago, Jesus dying on the cross, and we say, oh, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Now my sins are washed away. But did you guys know, and this might be a little blasphemy for you, but it's not because this is true, okay? People were not standing in front of the cross saying, wow, look at that Jesus dying on the cross. My sins are being washed away. That's great. They didn't know that was happening at the time. 
but they knew something was happening. They looked at the cross and they said, something amazing is happening right now because I've seen many people die on the cross before, but this guy, there's something different about him. Something's going on here. <clears throat> and they're looking around and they see this Roman guard. And this Roman guard, who is the enemy of Jesus, right, is standing there saying, surely he is the son of God. And it's like, what? Like, aren't you an enemy of this guy? Like, what, what just happened to you? Your heart just changed. What, what's going on here? It's like, people didn't know what was going on, but they knew that what was happening was somewhat significant. They didn't know what was going on. They were like, what is going on? What is this? And then upon looking at the situation deeper and deeper, they realized what the implications were. Okay, and <clears throat> one of the best ways of understanding the implications of this is a quote from a guy named Laurel <clears throat> Grisham. He's an Episcopal priest. He's pretty famous. This is what he said. <clears throat> Excuse me. The suffering of Jesus is a sacrament. Now, what is a sacrament? A sacrament is, is, a, is a way of displaying or pointing at something. It's like a celebration or a ritual that points at one thing, okay, this one meaning. So he's saying, when Jesus was suffering, it was a display of something that was great, okay? He's like, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, it was pointing to this one thing. What was it pointing to? The love of God. The story tells us that God, that God willingly soaks up all our systemic injustice, personal evil, and violence, and returns only love. So when Jesus was dying on the cross, People weren't thinking, oh, there goes my sin. Whew, yes, heaven, here I go. You know, like, that's not what, it, what they were thinking. They were thinking, surely this is a sign that God loves us. We've thrown evil after evil after evil for the past whatever hours. We've been throwing evil at this guy. And any human being at any point would have just hurled insults back or said there's something evil back in return. But Jesus, for some reason, when we threw evil after evil after evil at him, his response was only love. Now, if Jesus is who he says and he claims to be, which is the Son of God, you know, the only begotten Son of God, if that really is who he is, okay, and we just threw a whole bunch of bad things at him, everyone's like, oh, we're totally screwed because we just killed the Son of God and God is now going to throw lightning bolts at us. He's going to cause earthquakes to happen. This is the end of humanity as we know it because we just destroyed the most important, valuable position of God. But what happened instead? God didn't punish people. God didn't say, you did that to my son? Well, here it is to you. Bam! He didn't do that. Peter, you betrayed my son that many times? He didn't do that. Judas, 30 silver coins. He's at least worth all the silver of the world. He didn't do that. The response to the evil of the world to the most precious, valuable position of God was not, I'm going to get you guys back. It was, forgive them. I love you. Some people might be saying, oh, wait a minute. No, maybe God was just being passive. Maybe he's holding it up. Maybe he's charging it up. He's like, that was so evil, and I'm not going to do anything right now, but in a few days, I'm going to hunt down every single person and make sure they know that they just, like, maybe that's what it is. Maybe, maybe the lack of activity from God from the cross, maybe that is God's way of being passive. Maybe that's what it is. This isn't love. This is just God penting up his anger, and eventually he's going to release it one day and destroy everything. Maybe that's what it is. <clears throat> But we discover that's not true because what we read in the book of Mark. Take a look at this. <clears throat> there are women who actually went to the graveside of Jesus, and when they found out that the, roll, the stone was rolled away, they were like, oh, something's going on here. But when they, these are the women, looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And they entered the tomb. They saw a young man dressed in white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. So they were like, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? <gasps> who are you? You're wearing white, and you're 
you're not dead. Who, who are you? His response, do not be alarmed, he said. You are looking, at, uh, looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. Now, this is really important. We'll get back to it in a second. He is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, the reason why the angel here specifically puts Peter in his own category is because Peter was the one that really, really messed up, okay? He could have easily said, why don't you go tell the disciples that Jesus is risen again? Why don't you go back and tell them that Jesus is here to say hi and, you know, have a meal with you? He specifically says, I want you to go and tell the, the, the disciples and Peter. Why? Because he wanted Peter to know that he doesn't have anything against him. He wasn't being passive. He was being forgiving. As a matter of fact, right after this, <clears throat> right, okay, like, when you think of Jesus coming back from the grave three days later, like, okay, right now it's coming close to, like, Halloween, so there's all these movies coming out with horrors, right? And, and there's these movies where, like, last summer you killed a guy, and there's, like, five of you, and so today you're finding out one by one your friends are starting to be killed off, right? It's like, this is Jesus, right? He's coming back, and it's like, dude, did you hear about Peter? He's dead. It's like, oh, did you hear John? He's gone too. Like, what? Like, oh no, there's 10 more disciples. We need to make sure they're okay, right? That's not what's happening here. Jesus is specifically pointing out the people who betrayed him and saying, it's okay. I love you. It's going to be fine. And he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just show forgiveness. He also gives them the Holy Spirit and says, and now this is how you're going to repair the world. This is not a God who's, who's bent on revenge. This is a God who just is madly in love with people and he can't do anything about it but just to forgive and love and cause people to go and love other people and fix the world one person at a time. This is who our God is. You see, so when people looked at the death and the resurrection of Jesus, they didn't see, oh, my sins are forgiven. But eventually, Paul does talk about that in later parts of the Bible. But when this happened in the first few days after Jesus died and rose again, people looked at it and said, this is a sign of love from God. We threw all the evil we could to God, and he only responded with love. And so, this is the point here. The death and resurrection of Jesus proved once and for all that God is love. God is love, and he will give up everything to restore all things. He didn't just say, yeah, you betrayed me, but it's okay. And he just kind of left it that way. He said, not only that, I want to equip you so that we could be a part of this whole restoration of the whole world thing. That God is love, and that he wants to restore all things. These are the two implications, the two signs, the two meanings, the purposes behind the death and resurrection of Jesus. So, out of this statement came this question. If God is love and he desires to restore all things, what does that mean for us? What does that require of me? Should I change the way I live? Should I change, stop doing this? Should I start doing that? Like, what does that mean for me? And this is what it means by this verse, Acts 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. They were talking about the hundred million plus one implications of what does it mean that the world is now being controlled and ruled by a God of love that wants to restore all things. What does that mean? And some people will come together and say, well, you know, I was thinking the other day, I, was, I had a fight with my, you know, m- with my spouse, and, you know, if Jesus is all about love and forgiveness, maybe I should forgive her for the thing that she did to me. 
Or, or, or the wife will come and say, you know, the other day I, I was being treated unfairly, but because God is love, and because he died on the cross, and he didn't deserve it, and I feel like I didn't deserve the thing that was done to me, maybe I need to act the same way that Jesus did. So that's what it requires of me. Oh, maybe when I buy things, maybe I should be more careful of what I buy, because I know when I buy certain things, it's actually affecting people over, you know, like, there are huge implications to the fact that Jesus died on the cross, that God is love, and that Jesus rose again, that God wants to restore all things. There are huge implications, and that's what they gathered and talked about. Day after day after day, they would get together and say, well, what does that mean? And they're like, maybe it means I should do, like, act this way at work. And so they'll go to work, and they do their thing. They come back and they say, yeah, that didn't work. You know, maybe this is what Jesus meant. And they would try different things, and they would try to live their lives a little differently than they did yesterday, because that, to them, was what it meant to be a Christian. So one of the first Christian leaders, which happens after this story right here, his name was Paul. He was one of the first great leaders that planted many churches. He did the same thing. He studied over and over again. What are the implications of this? What are the implications of this? We, well, Paul, it turns out, gave us a list of some of the implications that he came up with. And he wrote it in a letter to a place called Rome because there's a church that started in Rome. And I want to share with you some of the implications. There's a lot here. Okay, you don't have to memorize all of them. But if you want to, you can study it on your own. This is chapter 12 of Romans. I want to share with you some of the implications that he came up with that Jesus died and rose again. Let's take a look at that from verse 9. Love must be sincere. Don't pretend like you love somebody. It has to be from the heart. It's not like, I love you, but in your head you're like, I hate, the, I hate his guts. You know, like, you can't do that. He's like, because Jesus, when he loved us, he loved us sincerely. He loved us so much he was willing to die for us, right? Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. He's like, inside the church, you need to make it a habit to try to love one another, Honor one another above yourselves. Like when Jesus died on the cross, I think the implication of that is that he thought that his life was less than everybody else. That's why maybe he laid his life down for us. It's like, well, then maybe we ought to live that way too. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Do what you can to, to, to serve God. Everything that you do that you think is good behavior, it's nothing if you're not doing it for the Lord. Let's do that because that's what Jesus did, right? Next verse, verses 12 through 13. But... Be joyful and hope patient uh, in affliction, because that's what Jesus was. He was patient through his afflictions. Faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Jesus, like, if you look at the way Jesus lived his life, he cared for those who really needed help. Maybe we need to do the same thing, right? Maybe we should practice hospitality. Yeah, let's do that, because that's the implication of what it means for Jesus to die on the cross. If God is a God of love, right, and he's selflessly loving other people, then maybe we need to do the same things for the people who can't help themselves. Yeah, let's do that because that's what Jesus said. Okay, that's an implication of Jesus dying on the cross. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Why? Because I'm pretty sure that's what Jesus did on the cross. He was dying and he was being persecuted and he was still looking around him saying, I want to bless you, I want to bless you, I want to bless you, I want to forgive you, I want to show you mercy, I want to give you grace. It's an implication of Jesus dying on the cross is to be this way. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. That's, if God is love, then that's an implication, right? Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Did you know that's what Jesus did? God's son came down to our level to meet with us, and not only that, he lowered himself even lower, and one of the writers of the New Testament said that, that God brought himself lower, even lower to the level of a servant, so that he could serve us right? That God was willing to do that. Well, if that's the case, and that's what requires of us if God is love, then maybe we ought to do the same thing too. Okay. It says, do not be conceited. Jesus was never conceited. 
because if you're a loving person, you're never conceited, right? Next verse. Do not repay evil for evil. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus repaid evil with love, right? Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone, right? Because if you're into this whole thing about resurrection, about restoring all things, this is a requirement. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, this is a funny thing. He's like, I know this is impossible. If you could do it, try this one for size. Live at peace with everyone. (laughs) Why? Because Jesus did it. He succeeded, but I don't expect everybody here to succeed at that, (laughs) right? (laughs) I I thought that was funny. Okay, verse 19. (laughs) Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. He says, remember when Jesus died on the cross? He wasn't seeking revenge. When he came back from the dead, he wasn't like, I'm going to hunt down every single person who betrayed me. I'm talking really fast. I'm really excited about this. Okay, (laughs) why shouldn't you seek revenge? For it is written, this is an Old Testament passage. He says, it is mine, this is God speaking, to avenge, I will repay. He says, it's your job to love. Okay, Jesus didn't even see it, his job to judge the people, right, right, when he was on earth. So you shouldn't do that. Let God deal with, with the wrongs of the world, right? On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And we're talking about enemies here. Okay, like I think today in America, when it comes to enemies, we think about different political associations. Um, Maybe it's uh, your least favorite politician or least favorite president or whatever. If you see that person thirsty, you give him water. If that person needs help, you lend a hand, right? Um, Thirsty, give him uh, something to drink. Uh, In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, which is not a bad thing, okay? Burning coals on someone's head back then was not a bad thing. It, was, it means that you could transform them. You're purging them of their evil. You're basically saying, I don't agree with him. He's my enemy. But by me being his friend, me being able to help this person, this person might be changing on the inside and becoming somebody that's a little more bearable to you. That might be a good thing. That's how you get rid of enemies is by loving them, right? And then he concludes this whole paragraph with this thing. He says, this is how I want to just sum everything up. This is it right here. Do not overcome evil, uh, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He said, do you want to know the implications of the cross and the resurrection? Do not overcome evil with evil. Overcome evil with love. Overcome with good. That's what's required of you if you believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is what it means to be a Christian. If you believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus, then this is how you ought to be living. There are millions of implications. Millions of implications. How you should treat your family members, how you treat your parents, how you treat your your kids, how you treat your classmates, how you treat your your people in your same cubicle because, you know, you have a big cubicle. I don't know, right? But like whatever the case is, there are many, many implications that God is love and God is into this thing called the restoration of all things. And that's what they did at church. The first church, one of the, the first thing on the list of the things they did in these, these first, the birth of the church was they talked about and they learned and they taught each other the implications of what it means that Jesus died and rose again. Now, we're in a church setting right now and I'm telling you the implications of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, okay? But this is not what it looked like in the first church. This looks more like a lecture hall where I teach you and you just take notes. So like, some people think that, you know, when it comes to, um, well, here, let me show you the next slide. The, it's the title screen. This is a painting of Peter teaching the first church. I know it's kind of dark. You can't see it, right? But this is what the imagination was. You don't turn off the lights. Yeah. Um, 
This is, what the, this is what the people who painted this thought it looked like. Okay, where Peter was teaching everybody and everybody's down there with a notebook and pen. They're like, uh-huh, okay, okay, okay. All right, I'm gonna go do this tomorrow, right? That, that was not how it was back then. This is the false interpretation of what, what it looked like back then. Churches were usually like a group of people in a circle and the leader of the group would stand up and say, today we're gonna talk about this. This is what I think. And then he sits down and then everybody else joins in the conversation and they discuss and they pray for each other, and they say, I agree, or I tried that, it didn't work for me, and they do all these things together, right? So as much as I like these rows of people facing me and me talking to you about what I think about the Bible, right? What they did, original church, they actually gathered in circles, and they talked about things about like, oh, I agree, I disagree. Well, why do you disagree? Well, this is my experience. Oh, that's an interesting experience. This is my experience. And they would just talk about these things, about the implications of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so what I'm here to say is, as much as I'm happy that you guys are here, sitting here, listening to me talk, that this right here is not church. This is a gathering of people listening to a pastor talk. Church is really what we call small groups. We call it at this church, we call them life groups. And so this is so important for you guys. I want you to get this. If you want to be a part of a real church that the birth of the church really talked about, we could talk about the implications. You could pull me aside after service and we could talk about the implications of the gospel. We could totally do that, Okay. But you're not going to get the full effect of what it means to be a, a learner of the gospel until you're part of a group of people who are just discussing what worked and what didn't work. What does it mean? What are the implications? If you don't do that, you're not really getting the full gist of what a church is. So some of you, maybe you never have been to church before or this is your first time in church in a long time. And the reason you left in the first place is because like, man, church is boring. You know, I just sit there and I listen to somebody's talk. The church is so boring, right? Well, I'm, I'm here to tell you, give church another chance because... That's not, this here is not the full extent of what church is. Church isn't really church until you're in a group and having discussions. And there's three more parts of this series where we're going to talk about the other three things that we need to do. But what you're going to learn throughout the series is this, okay? And get this, this is really important. Until you're part of a group, you have not experienced church. You're going to discover the other three things on this list also require you to be in a life group setting. So the whole point of this is this, church essentials. The first part of this whole thing is we need to talk about and we need to learn from each other what the application and the implication of believing that Jesus died and rose again is. And in order to do that, we have to be in a group. And by the way, if you're that kind of person who is afraid of being a part of a group, we have safe people here. Meaning you could talk to certain people. You could talk to Pastor Stan. You could talk to Lori. You could talk to me. You could talk to Tim. You could talk to a lot of people or just talk to somebody that brought you here maybe. And you could talk about the implications of God being love. Whatever the case is, you need to have these conversations. Now just imagine, just imagine, okay, if every church in the United States, just the United States, not the world, just the United States, if every church in the United States, or you know what, let's just say all the churches in Los Angeles, if all the churches in Los Angeles did this, if we all gathered in small groups, not just this church, but all the churches in Los Angeles, and we talked about what are the implications of love, if God is love and God wants to restore all things, what are the implications of that? I think we'd be forgiving more people. We'd be showing more grace to people. We'll be more generous with our belongings. We'll be doing so many more things. Don't you think the world would be a better place? Don't you think the church will actually be a light in the community if we all actually did this? And this is why it's important for all of us to have these conversations. It's not just about getting together and reading the Bible. It's not just about Bible study. It's reading the Bible and saying, what are the implications of this Bible study? How can I act it out in the world that I'm living right now? 
wouldn't the world be a different place? And that's the vision that the first church had for all of us. Amen? All right, let's pray.